Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365 day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Do you want to hear how plasma was collected? It's just an unbelievable vision that I can't get out of my mind. That you need to see. That. Tom Mull has a video that a whistleblower leaked to him. He's a lawyer, and he represented people in America with haemophilia who were given HIV. The video shows the inner workings of a factory where a pharmaceutical company made Factor 8. Tom and his wife Lorraine and their friend Michael Baum, who are also lawyers, are talking me through it. It's kind of rough, gritty film, which makes it perfect. The leaders of plasma that are things that look like... Plasma uh, bottles are loaded onto a conveyor belt. Lined with workers who are wearing moon suits. Then they go through a, a thing that slices the top off of them. Then they get tilted... At the end of the belt, they're emptied them. into a massive vat. Looks like a beer vat, honestly. A big, these big stainless steel barrels. If you could imagine, like, you had one of your water bottles that you, you know, used, take 5,000 of those and dump them into a, uh, a vat. It looked like pond scum. It was disgusting. All the nasty stuff rose to the top and it was green and bubbling up. And they'd stir it and there was a process where they could pull out the different products. They did that by spinning it around at a high speed. And it's just like the petroleum industry. Every level of molecules created a different product. So the hemophilia factor eight and factor nine were the first spinoffs. It took five or six vats worth to make just one batch of factor eight. So there'd be like 35,000 donors in these vats processed into the cake material that was freeze-dried. So each dose of factor eight contained the blood of tens of thousands of people. So if you imagine taking 30,000 donors from San Francisco during the height of the AIDS epidemic, a few of them are going to be HIV positive, no matter how much screening you do. And they knew that. And just one infected donation is enough to contaminate the whole batch. They knew that there was something dangerous and would generate disease when those workers were all wearing boot suits to be around the plasma. Whatever those viruses were, were going straight into the arms of hemophiliacs. I'm Cara McGugan, and this is Bed of Lies, Episode 4, Fabrication. There's something I haven't told you yet. 
something that goes to the heart of this series. Big question coming. Uh, those are the easy ones. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Where do you think the main lies and cover-up are? Uh... I'm with Des Collins. He's a British lawyer who represents people infected by blood products. The two departments of state where there's been a cover-up and who have worked very closely hand-in-hand throughout this are the Department of Health and the Cabinet Office. In the last episode, I explained the three areas where I think this all went wrong, where opportunities were missed to stop the disaster. There was the collapse of David Owen's plan to use British-only blood products in the 70s. The insistence from the medical profession that Factor Eight was a miracle treatment and better than the old cryoprecipitate. And there were those months of prevarication in 1983, which ended in Ken Clark saying there was no conclusive evidence that HIV was spread through blood products. Then, having found they got it wrong, they covered it up. And that is not what you expect of a civilised society. Des has a good analogy for how he thinks the government behaved. It's like a schoolboy, you know, the schoolboy tells one little lie and that's easy, but after, after he's told a lie to his form teacher and then the deputy head and then the headmaster and then the headmistress and then his mother, then his father, by the end of the day, he doesn't know what to do. He's got so many lies coming out of him and he's got to check every lie's the same or that he's not contradicting himself. That's why this became so complicated. What Des is saying is that it was too difficult for the government to admit to their mistakes because so many people were already infected. So they lied and covered it up and said nothing could have been done differently. I'm aware that's a big allegation to make, so I'm going to go through the evidence. The first is the destruction of documents. This is the thing David Owen, the former health minister, told me to look out for that day I met him at his home. It's never been entirely clear why David Owen's plan for self-sufficiency fell through. And there's a reason for that. After he left office and people started to get sick with HIV, he asked for his ministerial papers to be sent to him. But he was told he couldn't have them because they'd been destroyed. There are many of us who think that one of the reasons why you can't get out a lot of these documents was they cleaned them up because there was a panic going around the world in the middle 80s that uh, these issues would reach court. That's David Owen speaking for a documentary a couple of years ago. The government said a junior minister had shredded them. And his papers aren't the only documents that have disappeared. Medical records have vanished. Letters sent between the Haemophilia Society and the Department of Health have also gone missing. And more. There's a note in the archives to say one file was misplaced while on loan to a government department. There's definitely evidence which will have been destroyed, some legitimately, some illegitimately. That's Jason. His dad died after having contaminated Factor Eight and he's been investigating what happened. He's made well over a 1,000 Freedom of Information requests for government files, and he's got a lot of notes back that say a document has been disposed of. It says when, but not why. I think documentation will have been destroyed because 
in someone's opinion, it should never see the light of day. The government told Jason all the remaining documents were in the public domain. But when he discovered that wasn't the case, he challenged them. They've now accepted, actually, that that was a lie. And they've sent me an apology letter. Jason got hold of some of these documents through his requests. But over time, the responses grew slower and slower. Eventually, he wasn't getting much back at all. And government departments were rejecting him for all kinds of strange reasons. Like he couldn't have a file because he might give it to the press. Which isn't even an exemption under FOI. So it it just began to get really, like crazy and and I really try to avoid conspiratorial thinking but I got a call out of the blue earlier this year it was a reporter from a news site called open democracy and she said we're working on this kind of investigation into this thing called clearinghouse have you heard of it and I said no Clearinghouse is a secret part of the Cabinet Office, which screens freedom of information requests. So I I was later given sight of these, what they call round-robin lists, which some media have referred to as blacklists. Jason was on the list, and still is. It explains why his requests were taking so long. I think there are some journalists and things that are on that list who might almost see it as a badge of honour that they're on this supposed blacklist. I'm just trying to get to the truth of how my dad died and get back what was taken from my family. It's also just another example of how hard the fight has been and how much resistance there is. Jason has one conclusion. The forces of the civil service don't want us to win. When it comes to historical turning points, there are normally a lot of factors that lead to seismic change. That sounds grandiose, but it's an easy way to understand the shift that finally led to action over the infected blood scandal. It wasn't just down to one campaigner or political event. But if I were writing an essay for a history lesson, I know what I'd describe as the catalyst. It's the moment that Jason met lawyer Des Collins. I did actually write a piece about that, back in 2019. I called Des the lawyer who made the infected blood inquiry happen. And I also said, with his watery blue eyes and moustache, he has the look of an old-fashioned private detective. The first thing he says when I get back in touch is that he's never lived that down. Um, Watery eyes. uh, Yes, watery eyes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry about that. (laughs) But Des is of the old school. I stand by that. He set up his law firm, Collins Solicitors, with his wife in the 90s. It's on Watford High Street, and it's quite unassuming. It's a fairly crummy office in Watford High Street. (laughs) I know where it is. You can quote me on that. His (laughs) unassuming crummy office and his watery eyes. (laughs) But, um, no, it's not what you'd expect to find. But But he's always punched above his weight. One case got him international recognition about toxic waste in Corby. After its steelworks closed down, a disproportionate number of babies were born with birth defects. It was a landmark case. The uh, 
material had not been disposed of properly and that had caused the birth defects, which was the first time anyone had tried to get a court to say that when we were lucky enough to succeed on it. Out of that case, Des got himself another nickname. Not one from me this time. Is that Corby case where the nickname Erin Brokovich came from? Yes, it, it is, yes, yes. He even sent her an email. And she replied immediately, you know, sent sort of loads of congratulations. And what about Julia Roberts? Did you ever hear from her? Uh, no, 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 no. I'm still waiting for the phone call. Anyway, so Jason had tried 100 lawyers. He had all this evidence that he thought amounted to wrongdoing by the government, but no one would take him on. Then he met Des and his colleague Danny Holliday at an event, and they gave him their business card. I really had no hope, actually, that any lawyers, including these two that had just given me business cards, could be of any use whatsoever. He decided to give Des and Danny a call. I said, hi, you know, I met you at the meeting. He phoned and said, could he come along and see us? And I said, yes, yeah, that's fine. It was early 2017, and Jason travelled to Watford with a friend. His friend had been infected with HIV and hepatitis C. They buzzed the doorbell, and they were ushered into a meeting room near the entrance of the Collins offices. It was overlooking the high street. It's the same room I'm sitting in with Des as he recounts that day. We walked into Collins, and it was like a room full of people. And I thought, oh, this seems a bit serious. There's Danny, myself, um, and certainly three other experienced assistance solicitors sitting around this table. Des was definitely like no other lawyer I'd ever met. He instantly felt different to any lawyer I'd, I'd dealt with before. You'd expect them to be slightly bookish. You'd expect them to possibly have a master's in environmental law. These guys had neither. I mean, they were just two blokes. We sat down and Des just said something to the effect of, well, take it away. I was kind of prepared for that. So I just began to explain what I thought had happened. From my dad's personal experience in terms of while the products were being used, that there was knowledge of risk before the products were used. Afterwards, there was some attempts to trying to go back to cryo and then being convinced to go onto evidence, which will have been destroyed. Attempts to keep it under wraps, withhold that knowledge. It was a disaster. I couldn't believe what I was listening to. You asked Jason anything and he had the answer. I would refer them to documents. Totally impressive. As I was speaking, they would ask, you know, the odd question. What's your evidence for that? Somehow managed to have a document that could answer their question. And it was balanced evidence. It wasn't all one-sided. I couldn't believe what I was listening to. What did you think when you looked at those documents? Dynamite. It's like in 1853 out in California, you know, you handfuls of rubble and all of a sudden you ping this thing, bloody gold here. I told you about those documents in the last episode, the ones from 1983 that showed people at high levels were warned of the risk of AIDS in Factor Eight, But the government continued to say it wasn't conclusive, that the product was safe to keep using. It blew my mind, that meeting, to be honest, because we probably spoke for two hours 
Then Des said something that completely shocked Jason. He said, Why don't we write to the Department of Health and tell them we're going to bring a legal action? And he was like, do you want to do that? And, and I remember just being like, uh, yeah, that, that sounds okay to me. But in my head, I'm you know, singing and dancing. And I'm like, this is amazing that someone is actually going to do this. The um, legal action against the Department of Health, what was it saying at that point? We were accusing them of uh, misfeasance in public office. What does misfeasance mean for unknowledgeable listeners? A, a very, very layman's definition might be some bad guys did some bad stuff. It's a long case, it's a complicated case, but in, in essence it's not that difficult. You know something's wrong, you don't tell someone, they die, you know, where's the difficulty? After that meeting, Jason and his friend went to a pub around the corner called The Flag. We sit down, get out all day breakfast, and the first thing I did was accidentally sprayed um, brown sauce all over my shirt. And with sauce down his front, he sat there and pinched himself. When you're wanting something to happen so badly for such a long period of time, did that actually just happen? Has that really just happened? From the moment Des said he would send that letter to the Department of Health, suing for misfeasance in public office, things snowballed. Jason rallied other campaigners, and they soon put their names on the lawsuit too. Within a couple of days, they were up to like 100 clients. Within a couple of weeks, I think it was up to 300, and then it was 500. And By July the 4th of that year... Collins lodged the application for a group legal action with the High Court. After more than 30 years, survivors were being recognised. They were front-page news and on the television. The thought of injustice, not knowing what had happened. His life opportunities were diminished. Establishing exactly what happened, how it happened, why it... You have a choice in life, don't you? You can spend your time being angry. The energy then behind the campaign was nuts because... We then had all the media attention coming in. There are so many seeking answers. Lauren Palmer was not. And finally, something many of them wanted. The victims and their families have suffered pain and hardship, and they deserve answers. And the inquiry that I've announced today will give them those answers so they will know why this happened, how it happened. This was an appalling tragedy, and it should never have happened. So I've covered the doctors, the benevolent medics who wanted to help their patients, but ended up injecting them with a deadly disease. They miscalculated the risk, but they followed national guidance. I've told you about the politicians and decision makers, the likes of Ken Clark and Professor Arthur Bloom, who continued with the policy of using American Factor 8, and the later cover-up. These are all things that the Infected Blood Inquiry is looking into for its final report. But in my hunt to work out who was behind Brian's death and all these infections of HIV and hepatitis C, is there somewhere else I should be looking? Who are the real villains in this story? The villains in this story are clearly the pharma companies. And I don't say that because they're pharma companies and they're easy to hit. They produced this material. 
More on that after this short break. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Theo Leloudis, the executive producer of Bed of Lies. We've spent months digging into this story, following the inner workings of the inquiry, sifting through long court documents to get to the truth, and piecing together difficult testimonies of what really happened. But making a podcast like this takes time, and we couldn't do it at all without the Telegraph subscribers. If you'd like to support journalism like this, and to read as much as you'd like on news, politics, sport, business, and more, head to telegraph.co.uk slash lies podcast where you can get 30 days free access to the telegraph online and after that it's just two pounds a week that's telegraph.co.uk slash lies podcast or click on the link in the episode description i'm talking to someone who might sound familiar we'll get around to breakfast when this is over we're gonna have a mango we don't really have a lot of time to eat you know breakfast and lunch are for wimps it's tom mull the american lawyer Tom and his wife Lorraine had a law firm that was pretty similar to Des and his wife's, except theirs was over in Louisiana, far away from Watford. It was called Mull and Mull, and it also punched way above its weight. They're retired now. How long have you been in Hawaii for? Ooh, 30 years. We're going back and forth between Louisiana and Kauai for quite some time. Palm trees and sunshine. It's what allowed us to maintain our sanity during the... It's a shame I couldn't do this interview in person. But we're talking over Zoom. You might hear their dogs barking in the background. They're pretty lively. Britain wasn't the only country where people were infected by blood products. In fact, it was a worldwide problem because American companies were sending their contaminated Factor Eight around the world. In the US alone, about 10,000 people with haemophilia contracted HIV. And it was just the same story repeated. There were over 70,000 people who died globally from this same product. The exact number of people who were infected is unclear. That's an estimate Tom was working with during the case. They had problems in France and Germany and um, 
Costa Rica and Puerto Rica and Taiwan. In the 90s, a family approached Tom and Lorraine and asked for help. From outside of Baton Rouge in Louisiana. They had a son who was eight or nine. He had haemophilia and was infected with HIV. And he was just starting to get sick, and they were just starting to find out what had caused it. I I remember vividly the the day they came into the office and the story that they told, and it was heartbreaking. The Mulls took on the case, and word spread. And pretty soon we had, you know, over 100 people come into our office as a result of that first uh, interview. Now, every country treated this scandal a bit differently. In America, there were a lot of lawsuits, and I mean a lot. Thousands of people went up against the pharma companies who made Factor 8, and they lost 19 different cases. But Tom and Lorraine weren't deterred. The first time we looked at this, I thought, how is this not winnable? I mean, this it was the most compelling set of facts that I, I always There was a national case bringing all these people together, and the companies agreed to pay every victim $100,000. Separately, the American government passed an act of Congress. That's like an act of parliament. And they gave people who'd been infected another $100,000. But Tom and Lorraine's clients didn't want to settle. They wanted answers and a guilty verdict in court. Hundreds of people came to us from all over the country. They came to us for justice, and uh, that's what we tried to give them. And we gave them as much as we could. It was never enough, but we did uh, eventually have a trial, and we got a big verdict. Before we get to that, I need to tell you about my investigation into the pharma companies. There were four firms making commercial Factor 8. Baxter and Bayer, the two big pharmaceutical companies that are still going today. Alpha, a Japanese company that has closed. And Armour, which was owned back then by Revlon Healthcare. You know, the makeup brand. They hid evidence. They lied. They manufactured stuff. They got witnesses to misrepresent the truth. All the way up to the top of the... Tom and Lorraine tell me how they uncovered exactly what the pharma companies did. You hire investigators. You get involved with other law firms. It becomes a national effort. And the first round or two, you don't get the truth. The pharma companies won those first 19 cases by claiming no one could prove their products had caused HIV infections. So they needed to trace all the blood given to one of their clients back to its source. We started getting donor records. And then we were talking uh, hundreds of thousands oh. of pages of documents. Uh, insane. We oh, had good. to break the code um, ourselves. They and they enlisted the help of Michael Baum. He runs the law firm in California. They devoted uh, the whole section of their staff to donor tracing. And honestly, that's when the case turned. So this is what was called a lot summary that we used in the trial. And Michael's this, holding this a piece of paper in front of the camera. We're speaking on video call. It's a long list of numbers going all the way from the top of the page to the bottom. It's in two columns. And each of those is the number of a center that contributed plasma for one batch of Factor Eight. This lists all the centers from which the plasma went in lot C1217 that Ken Dixon ended up injecting, contracting, and developing AIDS. Ken Dixon died in his 20s, and his case is the one they took to trial as a test for all their clients. You said there was a whole team of people working around the clock. How long, are we talking months or years, that they were working on breaking that code? Years. But it worked. They started to crack the code 
and it led them to three types of high-risk plasma collection. A quick note before I get to them, because I want to tell you about the difference between donating blood, which you might do a few times a year, and plasma. A process called plasmapheresis was invented. And by this process... That's Douglas Starr, author of Blood, An Epic History of Medicine and Commerce. Plasmapheresis is different to donating blood because it just takes the plasma. They take the blood out of one arm and spin it around a machine and split off the red cells and insert the red cells back into you in the other arm and they keep the plasma. Because your red blood cells are returned to your body, you can give plasma a lot more often than blood. Now you could safely donate blood maybe six times a year and then you'll get severely anemic. But plasma is a different story. You could do it twice a week or about 104 times a year. In the period I've been looking into, the process was quite uncomfortable. There was a wonderful expose written in New York Magazine in the mid-1970s, and the writer wrote about, you know, it's a thick needle, it's one thing to feel the pain of it, but when it starts processing, all of a sudden you feel your heart beating. He says, you know what it feels like? It feels like being impaled with the edge of an automobile antenna. And he said, there's this electric ping in your heart. The whole thing can take a couple of hours. And you're stuck there. So in a way, it makes sense to pay people, and they still do. What Douglas has just said is important. In America, blood is donated and plasma's sold. In Britain and many countries around the world, it's illegal to pay donors. But across the Atlantic, that wasn't the case. And that's how they produced so much more Factor Eight, enough to supply their own population and abroad. The Europeans were very free in their condemnation of this. Oh, you Americans are so commercial. You're so vile. And yet the Europeans were getting a good portion of their plasma products from America quite quietly. So Britain, for example, were getting about 50% of their factor eight from the United States. So there was a lot of uh, hypocrisy going on at the time. But it turns out paying donors also meant American factor eight was more dangerous. But if you think of it, Who's going to want to get $35 or so to go through this kind of procedure? And that's people who really need it. Companies started collecting plasma from the worst neighborhoods with the sickest people. I told you about that in the last episode. Remember the World in Action documentary from 1975? This is East Baltimore Street, the city's skid row. This area with its bars, sex shops and peep shows is home to many Baltimore alcoholics and -and down-and-outs. That's the first type of high-risk collection, Skid Row. But it gets more complicated. As Michael, Tom and Lorraine were about to discover, the pharma companies went much further and the risks they took were incredible. The second place that a lot of plasma was collected was within gay communities in San Francisco, Los Angeles and New York. There was a strong sense of civic duty and donating blood and plasma was a way to do your bit. 
it was strongly encouraged. Michael wanted to find out more about how it worked, so he sent a couple of colleagues to libraries in those cities to look for old adverts. They searched through pages and pages of local magazines and newspapers. And eventually, they hit a treasure trove up in San Francisco and found a whole bunch of back issues of The Advocate. That's an American magazine that covered gay news at the time. It was a very sophisticated magazine in general. that The copies they found were from the beginning of the the 80s. And in the middle, there were adverts that stood out. Michael's showing them to me. Like this. Could you read that whole sentence for me? Yeah, it says, uh, we need a few good arms. Have you ever had hepatitis? Have you ever been in contact with hepatitis? Now you can make it pay as much as, wow, this that's more than I thought. So now you can make it pay as much as $550 extra each month. And that's when Michael discovered there was more to the pharma companies' work in gay communities than collecting as much plasma as they could. The companies actually wanted to collect blood with viruses in it, namely hepatitis. He carries on reading. And at the same time, you'll be helping contribute to the health and welfare of other gay men. How? Your plasma contains various amounts of antibodies or antigens, which are used in research and the production of a new vaccine against hepatitis. That's the hepatitis B immune globulin. They used the plasma to make a vaccine for hepatitis B. They did that by using the antibodies from infected people. A simple hour-and-a-half procedure whereby we extract your valuable plasma is all it takes to not only put money in your pocket, but help other gay men as well. So do your share. Trimare Hollywood, that's the, the plasma center, that was some of the most lethal plasma in the world at the time. And that's because they didn't just use that plasma to make vaccines. They used it to make other products too, like Factor Eight, And they did absolutely nothing to remove viruses from it. To make all these products out of the same vat, to make it cost-effective and make money and make profit from doing all this, they dumped all these donors into the same vat in order to make multiple products from the same vat. I had my third bat of hepatitis in 1981. It's the sickest I've ever been. Vomiting, green... Cirrhosis of the liver. Gloves, masks. I was so, so unwell. The pharma companies also had mobile trucks where people could volunteer to give plasma. Here's Tom, the lawyer from Hawaii. They were taking these into gay nightclubs in Miami and L.A. and New York at midnight and two in the morning. And Michael tells me... What they also did is they purchased plasma from sexually transmitted disease clinics in San Francisco or New York or... Los Angeles or Miami or Houston. At the same time as those adverts were published in The Advocate and as the pharma companies were going to STI clinics and gay clubs to collect plasma, there was word of a new illness going round. At the time, they called it gay-related immune deficiency. Which would soon be identified as AIDS. There's a strong correlation between lifestyle and hepatitis B and HIV. That's Tom again. And Lorraine adds... Then that was the big aha moment of, oh my gosh, this is... I've always thought it was criminal. 
they were using this plasma source without doing anything to uh, reduce the viral load in it. Just to clarify, so they were actively seeking people with viruses already. You got it. 100%. That's it. It was a giant money-making, multi-billion dollar annual industry, and God, they, they just didn't want to give it up. Tom, Lorraine and Michael have been helping me with my investigation. As lawyers, they put this case behind them long ago, but they feel like it's never been scrutinised properly. So they've been digging around in their archives to get documents for me and old tapes that hold answers about what went on. We had a whistleblower. He was actually president of Alpha Pharmaceutical Company in the United States, the division that was involved in this. His name was Dr. Tom Drees. And he was one of our uh, star witnesses, and he, he gave it all up. That's who gave them the video that showed Factor 8 being manufactured. I tried to track down Dr. Dries myself, but sadly he passed away last year. Michael says there was another whistleblower, someone who also worked at the company Alpha, who's never spoken before. She provided key evidence for the trial, and she knows exactly what it was like inside those companies back then. Michael says he'll message her to ask if she'll speak to me. There's one more risky place where the companies collected plasma, and that brings me back to that prison, the one I've been thinking about a lot, America's bloodiest prison. We, we had heard that it was that they were sourcing it from, from the it. prisons, and I was like, "Oh, that no can't way. possibly be true." So we filed an interrogatory asking them if they ever used prison plasma. Oh, and I, they said no. Absolutely not. None of them. But Tom decided to go and find out for himself. He drove down that single track road, the one with the big crack in it, Louisiana's Route 66 and he headed for the meander of the Mississippi River, the big sweeping bend that holds Angola prison. He had a tape recorder and a notebook in hand. It's a place of disease and fear, and as Tom was about to discover, there was a deadly virus inside the prison, which was finding its way out. I was a public defender in New Orleans for five years, and uh, I, I'd been there a lot, and I knew people, so I went there by myself and talked to a bunch of uh, guards at first, and they, they blew my mind. Tom needed to speak to some inmates because he wanted to know what was really happening inside the prison walls. And um, when you get there, you know, in order to meet with a prisoner, you have to go to a place, and they have a private room, and they call each person out uh, at a time, and you get to talk to them, and there are four guards sitting in the room with guns, uh, to protect you. It's maximum security. So these are people who were guilty of things like murder, rape and kidnap. Life inside Angola prison, or the farm, is strict and it runs to a tight schedule. Your day is regimented, it's broken up into hours and, you know, it's a tough lifestyle to accustom to, especially if you're in for a long time. It operates like a small city. They have a rodeo. It's the big deal of the year when you're, you know. It's like the Super Bowl when you're a prisoner. The Angola Rodeo. I think everybody enters so that they can get hurt and then spend time in the infirmary so they get up. Yeah, most of them do. The Angola Rodeo is a big deal, strangely. Only in Louisiana. 
Prisoners would look for anything to give them a break from working in the fields, from the hard labour under the intense southern sun, even injuring themselves in the annual rodeo. But there was another way to get a day off work. Prisoners would give, how much was it, a pint? A pint of plasma, I think, uh, for one cigarette. After they donated plasma, they'd get time off to rest. uh, I've asked Tom and his neighbour Jonathan to read a document for me. We don't mind doing it off the uh, iPad. We're prepared to do that. We printed it up on my uh, printer. It's the transcript of a conversation Tom had with one of the prisoners from Angola. He's been trying to find the actual recording for me. But after months of searching, it seems it's disappeared. Yeah, I really tried hard to find it. I couldn't. We, we looked and looked. I spoke with Michael as late as last night to try to find these tapes. Uh, they were in a box. There were 100 tapes. They're all missing. Uh, it's very strange, but they are. With the tapes nowhere to be seen, Tom says he'll reenact the interviews with Jonathan. Tom's reading his words and his friend, those of prisoner Richard Vincent. And this is where Tom ended up once he made it through one checkpoint Charlie, then another and another in the room where it all began. For the record, my name is Tom Mull. I'm going to be questioning Mr... Richard confessed to burglary and was sent to Angola in the late 70s. He was quite a character. He was okay with being in prison. He'd been in prison before. He's probably in prison now. He was a survivor. He was a tough guy. He was a big guy. Nobody messed with him. All the prisoners Tom spoke to had the same story. And it went like this. Have you ever sold your plasma at Angola? Yes, I have. How do you do that? You just write down your name and your number and give it to the inmate who's already a bleeder there. Bleeders. That's what they called prisoners who donated plasma. You go over and they take a little physical. It's a little doctor there. He just asks you if you've had a tattoo within six months, if you've had hepatitis, that's it. Then you're a bleeder. They only had one examination before their first time donating, and it took a matter of minutes. If he asked you if you were an IV drug user, could you just lie? Sure, yeah. How many times a week are you allowed to bleed? I bled twice a week, and you do two bags each bleed. You might have 75 to 100 people in there bleeding. You referred to the guys who worked in the plasma center. Who were these guys? Oh, this is inmates. Inmates actually staffed the plasma center? Yeah, inmates prick your finger, inmates give you blood pressure, inmates clean the little thing on your arm or the needle. I see you have tattoos. Would you describe them for the record? Oh yeah, I got a peacock and a little man's face here. Then I got a skull. I had tattoos under these. They were penitentiary tattoos. What are penitentiary tattoos? Well, you make a tattoo gun with a motor, a tape player, an ink pen, and a guitar string, and you get the tattoo ink. And did you give plasma during the time you were receiving these tattoos? Oh, yeah. Were you using drugs? Sure. What kind? Oh, heroin, cocaine, marijuana. Richard, the inmate whose words you're hearing, 
didn't find out until later that he had hepatitis B and C. They didn't care what you had. You know, if you had it, you could still bleed at the center. And there's another thing. While they queued up to donate... And it wasn't nothing to see people in the bathroom having sex before they go on the table to bleed. In the plasma center? In the bathroom, yes. I mean, it wasn't anything to see. You know, they're having oral sex and anal sex, then five minutes later, they're on the table giving blood. There were people being paid for sex and injecting drugs in the line to donate. And all the while, there were outbreaks of hepatitis and HIV within the prison walls. When Tom reported all this back to the guards, they were shocked. They tried taking the doors off the rooms in the plasma centre, but it didn't stop. It made no difference. They continued to do it unabated, and the guards were embarrassed to be part of that. They said they would just look away. Nothing they can do. How does it feel reading through that again now, this many years later? It brought back a lot of memories, as have our previous discussions. And, you know, I quite frankly, I have PTSD about it. I'm familiar with that condition. I was in Vietnam. I had it from that. It was successfully treated. I had dealt with it and just assimilated it into my life and moved on with it. And this has brought it all back. And it's it brings back memories not of Vietnam, but memories of things that I saw and things that I heard during the 10 years we worked on this case. After taking that statement from Richard in Angola, Tom went home and told Lorraine that their fears had been confirmed, and worse. I remember feeling the colour drain out of my face and almost feeling like I'd been punched in the stomach. I had an absolutely visceral reaction to the confirmation of what we'd been hearing. It was so outrageously irresponsible that it was hard for anybody to believe that they had actually done it. There was no way. They wouldn't possibly do that. They said they weren't doing that, you know. The companies that knew what they were doing, they knew what that was like. It didn't matter at all. Angola wasn't the only prison where the companies operated. They were behind the locked doors of others too, right the way across America. And how did these plasma centres end up in the prisons? What was in it for the prisons? It's all based on money. It was a state contract. Contract that they had to go through the governor. And uh, I would imagine that a lot of people were paid off uh, in order for this to happen. When Tom told the prisoners what they'd been involved in, it was hard to digest. They did not want to be responsible for the death of all these people, especially, especially the children. The children. It, it destroyed them. I mean, they were willing to do anything to help us at that point. No one could believe that companies had collected plasma in prisons on Skid Row and in nightclubs, then dumped it into those vats, mixed all the viruses up and made a treatment for people with haemophilia. Michael Baum sums it all up. It was as if all these haemophiliac kids and all these haemophiliac adults were sharing needles with IV drug users and prisoners during one of the worst epidemics of bloodborne diseases in history. And so that is, to my mind, a crime. Next time on Bed of Lies. I think I'm the only pharma person that's ever helped out. I knew that in these large plasma pools there were some infected units. 
it got to the point where, you know, it, it passed my ethical boundaries and I decided I have to just get away from this. Bed of Lies is written by me, Cara McGugan, and produced by Sarah Peters at Tuning Fork Productions. The executive producer is Theodora Leloudis and sound designs by David Thomas. With thanks to Tom Gibbs and Giles Gear. To stay on top of who's who in our story and to read exclusive behind-the-scenes details, take a look inside my reporter's notebook. We'll be publishing more every week at telegraph.co.uk forward slash notebook. You can listen to the award-winning first series of Bed of Lies, which investigates a very different scandal, on this podcast feed. And if you're not already a Telegraph subscriber, sign up for 30 days free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash lies podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.